So I'm, I'm very thrilled to be able to hear what um, Elder Michael Elliott will have for us today. So let's prepare our hearts. Um, bring to you a message from the Lord in uh, Genesis. Let us turn then. Often I have people stand, but we are just standing and get comfortable to listen. And I'm going to read a bit of a long sermon text. I believe it says there, it doesn't have the text. The actual preaching portion is chapter 50, uh, verses 15 to 21. But uh, for a bit of context, we'll back up actually to the beginning of 50. Hear that God's holy and infallible word preserved throughout the generations for us today. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. Now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, I know I have found favor in your eyes. If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house. Only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land of the Canaanites saw the mourning at the threshing, at the threshing floor of Atab, they said, This is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore its name was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father Joseph, he returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who went with, up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Perhaps Joseph will hate us, and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of your servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. When his brothers, then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. 
Father, thank you for this day that you have made. Thank you for your word preserved throughout the generations. Thank you for each of the people gathered here, for the opportunity to be with them in holy worship of you, the holy God. Please now direct my words uh, that you would keep me from error, that I would not speak the mere supposed wisdom of man, but speak your wisdom into lives here, and that you would have already, from uh, ages past and even from this morning forward, have prepared fertile ground for these gospel seeds to fall into and be nourished by your spirit. And if you so, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, the text before us, um, which I have to admit popped immediately into my mind um, as I've actually been preaching through Genesis for multiple years in multiple places. I started when I was uh, doing a church plant in western Colorado back in about 2016, preaching through Genesis. Uh, that church then closed down after about three years, and I was about two-thirds of the way through the book. So as I have opportunity, I've been uh, plugging my way through the last dozen or so sermons occurring within the congregation there in Omaha, or times I've traveled and done pulpit supply in Peoria, so different congregations getting little snippets. Uh, this sermon, or most of how it's worded, I did uh, alter it for today, but I preached a couple weeks ago in Omaha, and so as things happened within Presbytery this week, and uh, I was thinking, somebody's got to go <laughs> to talk to these folks and to communicate. I will go. One of those, uh, God send me. Nobody else can go. I will go. And I uh, thought, I've got a sermon ready. Uh, obviously, uh, you never want to preach the same sermon twice. I've never had that work. So it always has to be reworded some. And I was thankful for the airport delays and stuff yesterday. <laughs> it's a time to reflect on that and to see how God would have me specifically word this for you. But all that to say, uh, this issue of forgiveness as exemplified in the life here of Joseph and his brothers, uh, came to mind uh, in the midst of our meeting Tuesday evening by phone. And uh, so I see in this text a very plain uh, difference of uh, the burden of a guilty conscience as well as the freedom of a cleansed conscience. Uh, the brothers, being in that first group, the guilty, they were fearful, right? Whereas Joseph very clearly is at peace. The brothers, sadly, tragically really, had assumed the worst all these years, whereas Joseph, by grace, looked for the best. Uh, the brothers uh, throughout this story thought that Joseph would behave vindictively. They were waiting for it to come back on their heads, as they themselves had behaved vindictively years earlier, whereas Joseph sought to behave meekly, as the Lord had enabled him. The brothers sought to placate, that is kind of pacify, make people feel good, whereas Joseph promised to comfort the brothers had their eyes on men. Joseph had his eyes on the Lord. What a pity it is, really. If I think of myself walking through this story, if this was me encountering these people, whether it be a fly on the wall or one of the people there at the actual gathering, think what a pity it is that for so many years the brothers had lived with the burden of their sin. Clearly, they had not left the burden of their sin in Canaan. They hadn't left it in Goshen when they first arrived and encountered Jacob and Joseph. They had been carrying it all these years. While they were in the land, being uh, taken care of by their brother, the lie had not been dealt with. The hurt and the pain, the intention to murder, had not been dealt with. Even once they were in Egypt, they hadn't fully resolved this situation. For decades, it would appear, they lived with the guilt of their actions, wondering what is going to happen when our father is gone. Friends, this is not how it should be. As we know from our lives, whether it be families, communities, churches, restoration, 
needs to come sooner. Restoration can only happen by, by working things out. It doesn't come by pretending it's done or fearing today or it might finally be done. So I trust that as we look through this passage today, we will be stirred up personally to find forgiveness, whether it's between siblings, between neighbors, uh, extended family. I don't know all the situations you're involved in. Uh, the Lord does. Uh, but in all relationships, primarily, of course, between us and the Lord, that we would find forgiveness, find that mercy. We would find it promptly at the one and only place it can truly be found, right? That is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And may our lives be marked by grace that comes by knowing we are forgiven and then can communicate that forgiveness, that compassion, that grace to others. Because really, who wants to live like these brothers who have been harboring this guilt, not having a clean conscience for all these years? And that's not a way to live. It's not the way Christians should live. So may we lay our sins at the cross, find forgiveness from our gracious God, and have lives that evidence his abundant mercy. Amen? Amen. Yeah. So that's where I'm going, and that's where we'll come back to at the end. In the middle, uh, with this shared vision of lives of forgiveness, let us take a closer look at this passage, focusing on verses 15 to 21. First, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us, and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. First thing to consider is the timing. It says there, when, when Joseph's brothers saw. It would seem that this was on their mind during all of the events of chapter 50. That's why I read all of chapter 3, right? So when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, well, he died right at the end of 49. So it appears to me that for all the events of chapter 50, the planning for the funeral, that long trip back up to Canaan, this whole massive caravan, really a government entourage, along with the whole extended family, except for the youngest and their animals, it says, through all of this planning, through all of the implementation, the seven days of mourning up in Canaan, and the trip back, it's on their mind. Perhaps Joseph still hates us. What is he going to do? Is he going to repay us once we get home, now that we don't have the perfection of our father. So they were wondering during all that time what is going to happen. Now, likely, sadly, they could not even focus on honoring the father the way that they intended to because hanging over their shoulder in the back of their mind is what's going to happen. So let us be reminded here that when we don't resolve things, even the beautiful and uh, emotionally affecting events of life can't properly be entered into when we're distracted. When we're that lingering anxiety, what's going to happen with this other thing? And such is the case here. First 14 verses, they're not really honoring God. They're not really honoring their father because they're wondering. A thought in the back of their mind, aching on their hearts is, what are we going to do? What's Joseph going to do? And a proverb that came to mind on this topic is 28.1. Proverb 28.1, the wicked flee when no one pursues. Jacob, or Joseph wasn't thinking about this, right? He, with a clear conscience, was honoring his father, implementing the burial plans, coming back after a, a big uh, uh, ceremony and the burial there in the land that his father wanted to be buried in. He's not concerned. He's not fleeing. He doesn't feel that anybody's chasing him. Whereas the wicked flee or have anxiety when no one's even after them. Mm -hmm. Further, notice their concern. As we've already referred to, Joseph would repay them. That was their concern. Is he going to get back at them? Importantly, they're not denying that there was evil. Right? All these years, they've acknowledged their evil. They sadly haven't dealt with it. They all agree on 
The brothers agree it was evil here in verse 15. Uh, Joseph knew it was evil, verse 20. Uh, Jacob, is their father, is quoted in verse 17 as saying it was evil. Isn't it interesting that even when the facts are known, these things were evil, it's still not resolved. That is sad in and of itself. But thankfully, at least there was agreement. Nobody's arguing, <laughs> pretending that it was okay uh, to have done these things. But yet they haven't made those final steps of confession, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Further note, the word translated here, uh, repay, I'm reading from the uh, New King James. It says, actually repay. Uh, other translations have return. Uh, I think repay has the idea of a financial exchange. That's just a picture. You paid something, you didn't get paid back. Uh, certainly the wording return is a good image. Uh, if you play tennis, you return a shot that bounces back at you. Uh, the idea is directing back according to what, what was given. Uh, notice the words ahead of that, actually repay, or it could be translated fully repay. So they're fearing kind of a vindictive eye-for-an-eye mentality. They know they hurt Joseph pretty badly, went to death, or stealing from him, uh, wasting in a human sense 14 years of his life. Uh, the time in uh, Potiphar's house and then in the prison, I believe, is 14 years. And so they're wondering, is all of that pain, all of that hurt that we caused, is that going to come back at us? Certainly they would have known the biblical laws of restitution, which based on the situation actually double, triple, or quadruple that. So maybe they're thinking that, you know, I put a forehand back and Novak Djokovic, the amazing tennis player, is going to whack it back four times faster. <laughs> That's perhaps what they thought was going to happen. And it would be actually repaid, fully repaid. And why did they assume this of Joseph? Had he ever given a hint that he held a grudge? That he harbored ill will? That he wanted to get back at them? Or was looking for an opportunity to get even? I don't see any evidence of that in the text. Not that scripture records. And it's quite the opposite, actually. But note that when someone has not received a God's mercy themselves, when their conscience has not been cleansed, they tend make it personal, we, I, if that's me, tend to do as the brothers do here. We assume they're as bad as me, they're as vindictive as me, they're as impatient as me, they're as angry as me, they're as cheap as me. You know, all of these virtues that we are weak in, we often, looking through our glasses, see others in the same sense. The brothers knew their actions were evil. They assumed others were going to be evil back at them. Their consciences told them that the wages of sin is death and punishment, they couldn't deny that. Here, then, is the occasion of their father's death that awakened, at least in them, the sense of their guilt. They're all along, uh, suppressed to varying degrees, in all the years they're laboring in Goshen, I don't know that minute by minute they're worrying about this, but triggered by the funeral, by their father's death, this comes to the fore. They must deal with it now. They can't get away from it. <clears throat> Verse 16 now. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, Before your father died, he commanded. Again, these are the messengers speaking for the brothers. Now in verse 17, <coughs> oh, right there. So they're sending a message first. Okay, with that preamble. Uh, so remember they're herdsmen, uh, despised profession in Egypt, so they're not mingling with the Egyptians. Uh, Joseph, being that vice regent of Egypt, was not in Goshen. He was in the capital, and he was accepted among the Egyptians. Uh, so the fact that they're sending an emissary 
And uh, having somebody else do this first stage of conversation, I don't think we should read too much into that. It's a natural, respectful thing to do, given the geographical distance and the social distinctions that they sense in emissary. I would even suggest it's wise, right? Uh, the Bible speaks of if you're not able to resolve something with somebody, send somebody else. And if that doesn't work, then send two. So in terms of contract resolution, on the face of it, I believe uh, step 16 is wise. Uh, notice the preamble to their message. Before your father died, he commanded. Uh, interestingly, they don't say our father. It appear a bit awkward to us. I mean, these are the brothers, right? They all share in common the fact that their father, Jacob, just died. Um, I, again, want to believe the best of people. Uh, I believe likely they wanted to avoid the perception of putting themselves on the same level as Joseph. You can appear manipulative if you're like, oh, you know, we're all in this, and remember as kids, you know, that can come off as manipulative. So the fact that they say, your father, I believe, is just a sign of deference. Um, though, I should say, often those type of very obvious connections we have with people, if it's offered uh, genuinely, not disingenuously, can be a way to really form connections with people. We don't need to pretend, um, you know, if you meet somebody here in Harrisburg, like back when Steve and I both lived here, you know, I'm walking to the post office and I see somebody, I know the Harrisburg resident because they're going to the Harrisburg post office to their P.O. box. You know, we obviously have something in common. We're residents of Harrisburg. We don't need to pretend uh, that and manufacture some point of connection. So all that to say, it would have been truthful for them to say, our father, uh, but I believe they say your father just as a point of respect to Joseph. Uh, the word commanded uh, is very strong. Uh, it's instructions that are intended to be obeyed. That's uh, the exact same word used earlier in the chapter that I read, uh, I believe it's verse 2. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians. Um, uh, it's at the end of chapter 49. Jacob had finished commanding his sons how to bury him. These are instructions. These are things that need to be followed. Right. This isn't optional. And so uh, what the brothers are saying here is, remember our father's infallible instructions that you've got to do, and we know you're going to mm -hmm. do it because you're a loyal son. And uh, there could be a bit of manipulation there, really using the, father, the words of their dead father in order to get uh, their brother Joseph to do what they wanted. So maybe a bit of a loaded preface, trying to gain a hearing, recognizing that, you know, Joseph, you're the Lord of all the land. You don't have to listen to us, but at least you'll listen to our father, right? Listen to his command. So now for 17, this is the words that they asked this messenger to speak on their behalf. And so uh, this is actually the words of Jacob being quoted to Joseph. It's a little confusing here. You've got a person quoting a person quoting a person. So verse 17 is actually quoting Jacob's words. Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please, this is Jacob speaking, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. And then coming back to the messengers, now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And then Joseph's response, he wept when they spoke to him. <coughs> One thought that came to mind as I read this is, did Joseph, Jacob really say this? Right, this is the words being quoted by the messenger to Joseph. Did Jacob really say, did Jacob actually say, I beg you, Joseph, please forgive the trespasses of your brothers and their sin? If he did, why hadn't that been communicated earlier? Uh, why didn't Joseph already know that his father had said this? So it could be a little suspicious. You know, did uh, the brothers uh, stretch some words 
or think of a memory of what Jacob had said and put this in the, the letter or in the mouth of the messenger in order to, to live with it. Uh, I think it's unlikely that if Jacob really thought this, it would have been this long without saying it. Uh, if Jacob had said it, but Joseph was, Joseph was unaware, why didn't they share it with him previously? Uh, in a sense, I see the brothers using this message from the grave to at least prepare the groundwork. They're intending to come speak to him, and indeed in the next verse they do come speak to him personally. So they're trying to use this message from the grave to gain a hearing to, as I already said, you know, you're not going to disobey our father, right? And so please hear us. And so it does lay the groundwork. But notice the impact on uh, Joseph. He wept when they spoke to him. I think it's very much possible that Joseph wept primarily and it doesn't tell us precisely, other than uh, the verse we'll get to later, uh, 19. But uh, one sense of his weeping here, I believe, is the disappointment he felt that his brothers still felt guilty. I mean, he had taken care of them all these years. He had called them from the land where they may well have starved. And you're still afraid of me? <laughs> what have I done such that you haven't felt my love? Why do you still fear me? Is there something you've seen in my behavior, in my words, that you think I'm such a vindictive person? I mean, how heartbreaking is that when people don't know your good intentions, right? Right? Uh, when you actually have forgiven somebody and they're still acting kind of weird around you, you're like, heck, have I done something to give you an idea that there's a problem? Please tell me what in my facial expressions, my behaviors, either things I've done or things I didn't do, what could I have done to not make you fearful? So I do believe that's one reason for... Jacob's, or sorry, Joseph's weeping here. They don't know I love them? Why? How can we solve this? He had helped them migrate. He would situated them in a safe place. He'd worked with them to fulfill his father's burial instructions. Indeed, it must have been heartbreaking to learn that rather than having shared brotherly trust and affection, instead, a brother's beard. That would be painful. But thankfully, they were able to work it out in person. This is verse 18. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Amen. They rightly came with a humble posture, right? They're really wanting to convince him that they uh, are guilty, uh, that they're offering sincere repentance. They come with words, they come with actions, uh, words backing up the actions. They confessed that they were servants. They needed to confess their guilt. They needed to receive forgiveness. They needed to acknowledge we are wicked. We have done evil. Now, uh, verse 19 to 21, taking that together. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Verse 19, we'll look at that phrase, for am I in the place of God? Uh, there is a bit of controversy as to exactly how this should be worded, translated, and hence understood. Uh, different translations have it slightly differently. Three of the main views. Uh, one is that Joseph is rebuking them for bowing down, basically saying, that's inappropriate. You shouldn't do that. Uh, don't do that. You're acting like you're worshiping me. Uh, that's only befitting to God. So that's one way people understand that phrase. I take that as unlikely because there are other times where they bowed down before him and he didn't correct them then. 
there are other instances where people bow down before. Uh, and granted, it's the same Hebrew word, it's the same uh, Greek word as bowing down in worship, but context determines whether it's worship or merely showing respect. And so the fact that it happened in other places, the person isn't rebuked, it's not inherently wrong to supplicate yourself uh, before another human being, I'd say it is unlikely that that is the reason for J Joseph's wording here. Mm -hmm. The second idea is, did Joseph mean to set aside their fear of punishment because God alone brings penalties? As if to say, yes, I'm like the head over the police force in the whole nation, but I have no power over you, so don't fear me, only fear God. Yes and no, right? Eternally speaking, indeed it is God alone to whom we are accountable for our sins. But on this earth, within societies, within governments, whether it be family government, church government, or civil government, there are penalties. And so that would be inaccurate if Joseph was to say unilaterally, I have nothing to do with this, take it to the Lord. That would be partly true, but certainly not true for him to say uh, entirely. A third uh, reading, is Joseph stating, I'm under God, which is a slightly different translation, valid for in the place of God. So is he asking, am I in the place of God? Versus stating, don't fear because I'm subject to God also, therefore I'm not going to be rash or indifferent in my judgment. I believe this is close. The idea that he's stating, don't fear, I'm under God also. But while it's close, it misses uh, a form that we can't just skip over in the Hebrew that makes this a question. So we have to deal with the questionness of this phrase. We can't just take out the question mark and make it a statement. But I, so coming back to it, I believe it is uh, accurately translated, and the sense of the phrase is a rhetorical question. Am I in the place of God? You know, am I the one that can grant you a free conscience? Am I the one that can forgive your sins? And the uh, form in the Hebrew here requires a no. No, he's not in the place of God. Yes, he's acting as God's minister, as the vice ruler over Egypt, but in terms of absolving people of sins, I can't do that. But in terms of being reconciled with you, taking care of the relationship damage, absolutely, uh, we can resolve that. <coughs> and that's where we come to uh, verse 20. Because Joseph did not diminish the severity of his brother's wicked deeds. As I said earlier, everybody's agreeing. The brothers say it was evil. Jacob is quoted as saying it's evil. Joseph has acknowledged that it is evil. They had, in fact, been cruel to him. They'd sinned in their jealousy, they had sinned in their envy, they sinned in their violence, uh, they sinned in the money that they profited at his expense, and they sinned in their lives, trying to cover it all up. This caused a tremendous amount of hardship for Joseph. But notice, by grace, he doesn't take it personally. He says, God meant it for good. That is a profound statement. Yeah. His brothers meant it personally, petty, spiteful, greedy, hateful, anger, and a 20 textile forms you can insert there to describe the wickedness of their sins. But God meant it for good. It doesn't make what they did right. right. It doesn't ignore the fact uh, that what they did was genuinely and thoroughly wrong. But it states along with that the companion truth, the overriding truth, that God meant it for good. 
The brothers really did the action with their evil purpose. They really threw him into the pit, sold him to slave traders, and made up the story about his death by wild beasts. But God had a purpose in it, and it's stated here, to save many people alive. Man's purpose was evil. God's purpose was good. This doesn't absolve them. You know, think of the story of uh, Jacob and his uh, supplanting. Uh, those were wrong things he did. Did God have a purpose in it to carry the line through a particular brother, Esau, not Jacob? Yes. Uh, doesn't excuse it. It just highlights the fact that God is in control. So we don't need to figure out a way that what the brothers did here was right because it all worked out good in the end, right? If God's purpose was to bring them to Egypt, I guess it was good that the brothers did that so that they ended up in Egypt. No, that's not true. It is true that they were wrong. It is true that God had a good purpose. And God wins in the end. Verse 21. Uh, these are, I believe, comforting words. They should be comforting words to our hearts when we seek God's illumination to expose our own sin. It should be comforting words as we exercise uh, relationships and authority within the home, within the church, within civil realm. So let us be comforted by the implications of verse 21. We should not fear, right? And we're honest with ourselves. And we're honest with what God requires of us. The catechism question read earlier, what does God require? And how, what do we know about him? Mm -hmm. We should not be afraid. How is it we cannot be afraid? Because it's actually good for the person who's unreconciled to be afraid, right? If you haven't done the right thing to reconcile with God and man, it's not okay to pretend it's okay. Mm -hmm. right. That shows a hard conscience, a conscience uninformed uh, of God's word, uninformed of the seriousness of their sins. But having known the Lord, Having been reconciled, we should not be afraid. So when he says, do not be afraid, he's stating the reason why comfort can come, the why as to how fear is removed. Uh, passage that comes to mind is uh, sourced in Deuteronomy 32, quoted at least two places in the New Testament, in uh, Romans 12 and Hebrews 10. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will be. Right? As people, we don't have to think, how am I going to get back at him? How am I going to make him realize how painful that was? How am I going to, mm, you know, that's not our role. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Joseph does not need to exact personal revenge because it's not in his character. It's not a character merely unique to Joseph, right? It's the character of Christian maturity. Second, he encouraged his brothers to not be afraid because he saw God's good purpose in it. And as throughout our lives, being able to see things as God sees things is going to help us get through hard times. Like was prayed about Ukraine. I can't imagine living through what those people are going to. We don't all, from our chair or from their bunker, know what God's purpose is in this. But for Christians, we can know God has a good reason. Perhaps we'll see it before we die. Perhaps we'll be able to ask him once we get to heaven. What was your purpose in that? I sure didn't understand it then. Can you tell me now? But we can, with confidence, and it takes faith, right? Faith is, faith is the substance of things not yet seen. So even if we can't see it, to know that God has a good purpose. Here, uh, Joseph was blessed with the opportunity to see God's purpose. He could clearly see 
uh, probably prophetically earlier uh, when they first were reconciled and before they came down to Egypt, he could say, oh, wait, we're two-year mark in the famine. There's another five years to go. Now I see why God has worked this all out. But here, he's obviously, very obviously, a student of history. You can say, look what's happened, guys. You're here. You're alive. Your children are prospering. So that is God's purpose. So sometimes we will see God's purpose. Other times we won't. But either way, we can trust it. So in light of these two things, Christian maturity is not vindictive, and Christian maturity has faith to know and trust, even when unseen, that God is working it for good. In light of these two things, Joseph provided assurance that he meant no ill against them. Not only had he already taken care of them during the drought and helped them fulfill their father's burial commands, he is assuring them that he would continue to provide for them in their families. The words here translated provide as a sense of uh, taking care of, nourishing, not merely paying the bills, uh, but actually ministering to somebody, showing and demonstrating that you care for them. Uh, and the evidence is plain. In chapter 45, Joseph, Joseph promised to take care of them. In chapter 47, the divine author tells us that Joseph did, in fact, take care of them. And here in chapter 50, Joseph promises to continue taking care of them. This is why it's so sad that earlier they wondered, does he really love us? Is he going to come back and get us? Joseph had promised to. He has already done it, and he's promising to continue. His word should be taken as valid. They should not doubt his word. He had in the past, and he will continue in the future. And this is the uh, impetus of that last phrase. Let me just read it again. He comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. I have, I've had difficult times where I've just needed kindness, right? I've either had my sins catch up to me or uh, my personal limitations of skill or money or time have kept me from accomplishing what I intended to do. I knew I was falling short, right? I didn't need somebody to remind me, you're a failure. You've not done what you said you were gonna try to do. I just needed somebody to get the dagger from over my head and set it down and give me the proverbial hug. That is comforting them and speaking kindly to them. That's what friends do. That's what brothers do as they meet at the cross. The blood of Christ is perfectly sufficient, right? We don't need to lord it over them. We don't need to hassle them. We need to comfort. And sometimes you can comfort people before the cross has been applied in order to usher them to the cross. Friends help them get to that place. Friends don't harbor ill will. Brothers help brothers get to that place of mercy. And that's what Joseph did. So I hope this uh, strikes you as it is, again, me, actually, in speaking with you about it. This really is a profound story. Uh, in the broad scope, it encompasses the story of every sinner who comes to true repentance and faith. But before we conclude, I want to offer for you a few points of application. Uh, and I in preaching, I believe that any true preaching brings some application. Otherwise, it's just a story or a doctrinal lesson. So let us understand how it is that this story, these doctrinal lessons, actually impact our lives. That's what application is. One from earlier, and I certainly am not going to be exhaustive. I don't pretend to know the insights of your hearts, where you're at with all sorts of things in your life. I trust the Holy Spirit to do that. We're willing later in the day as we discuss this text with families, uh, reflect on it as you seek the Lord and say, well, what can I do with this? I want to be a doer of the word, not merely a hearer. What am I to do? 
with chapter 50. And uh, so as you reflect on that later, I trust the Holy Spirit will bring things. But a few things for us now, if I may humbly offer these. One, uh, actually coming back to uh, earlier in verse 15, um, it applies to bringing the gospel to others, uh, whether that be an actual sort of cold encounter of evangelism, talking to the grocery store checkout clerk or a client or something like that, or whether it be our children uh, or friends ensnared in their sin. We must remember that people know they are sinners, right? So at the beginning of the sermon, I spoke of brothers knew it, <laughs> father knew it, and uh, Joseph knew it. Nobody's pretending. Uh, a key truth in God's word to remind us of this is Romans 1.18. Everybody knows the truth that they're sinners. Some suppress it varying degrees in unrighteousness. The more unrighteous somebody is, the more they suppress it. And it is sad to see. But deep down inside, we know that people know they're sinners. They might be pretending they're not. They might be trying to put on a good veneer that they're having a good day and everything's going well. But deep down inside, they know they're sinners. They know that this needs to be solved somehow. So when we speak to people, we have the opportunity to use God's word to peel back that veneer. We're willing to break the ice and pull back the band-aid, another uh, uh, visual, in order for the infection to truly get cured. We speak to people, bringing God's word in order to awaken them to their sense of guilt and to bring the true solution for that guilt. So let us go into these, uh, I'll call them gospel encounters, with the confidence that you're not bringing something out of left field. People know they're sinners, but they just need to come to terms with it. A second one. With maturity, we see things as God sees them. Uh, key verse, uh, really a section, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, that's where Paul is talking about some of the behavior of the Israelites, right? And he says, I think it's verse 11, uh, these things are intended as lessons for you that we would learn and not make the same mistakes. <laughs> or at least we make those mistakes to solve them uh, in humility and confession. So in carnal immaturity, we often focus on us. How does this make me feel? I'm disappointed. I'm hurting. I didn't know what I want. This was expensive for me. Whatever. That's a carnal immaturity. With Christian maturity, which is growth, right? Day by day, growing in grace, making progress. With Christian maturity, we see God's view of things. As uh, Joseph words in here, that he meant it for good. So let us uh, try to see things as God sees them. Thirdly, God's own purpose does not excuse our sin. The key verse there to reflect on later would be Romans 6, chapter 1. So men really do sin. They really are held accountable for their sins, sometimes in time, by family governments, church governments, or civil governments, but not always. God ultimately is the one who will hold them to account. And the fact that God is the one who's really uh, bringing the punishment to bear eventually does not excuse the fact that it hurts people. They do work together. Let's just have some peace about that. God is in charge, uh, and his purpose of eventually bringing things to account does not excuse people's sins. Third, it is a really important exercise to rehearse God's ways and works. And what I refer to by that is, what has God done in the, God done in the past? Uh, what is he going to, what has he said he's going to do in the future? Because when we see what God's doing, remind ourselves of what he's done in the past, the amazing things that he's brought mm -hmm. his people through. That should be a comfort to us. And really that's uh, part of uh, Joseph's overall dialogue with his brothers. 
is he's telling them, remember what God's done. He's already saved you from this crazy big drought. You're here alive. Don't you see what God's done? So he's reminding them of God's mercy in order to show them that God can be merciful in the future. Right? God has done this in the past. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's going to do it again. Don't fear, but have faith. So friends, let us rehearse God's ways and works. Really recycling in our own mind, preaching the gospel to ourselves, but also preaching the gospel in all areas of our lives. And lastly, one application I offer to you is to know that God's overarching aim is good. Genesis chapter 1, I believe. I encourage you to read through all of that. Remember, when God created the world, was it so-so? Was it good enough? No, it was good. It was very good until sin entered, right? But uh, if you go through, and it's another sermon I did recently on uh, Jacob's prophetic words in chapter 49 to his brothers, the focus there is on the coming Messiah. So let us look at the whole of Scripture within the lens of started good, broken, but where is it headed? It's headed back to that very good. Coming of the Messiah, predicted here, having come in our past, is the key hinge point of history whereby God is doing what he said he would do. He said he would restore all things. He said he would solve the problem. That has happened. It is happening. In our text today, we're instructed that God's purposes are good. Right? He has good purpose even in the evil. He is bringing it to a good conclusion. So we should be comforted that the Lord is working all things for his glory. He is in control. He has a good end in sight. Well, again, other applications, uh, perhaps at lunch or this evening, um, we can talk about those. I look forward to hearing how God is working in your lives uh, through his word. Uh, But to conclude for now, brothers and sisters, let us not think that we, or those we see problems in, are forever consigned to guilt and to conflict. Let us not think that others who have sinned are beyond the reach of grace. That is not true. There is hope for peace and forgiveness. And that hope is only found in the Lord Jesus, nowhere else. So let us, let others seek and find. Don't seek him in manipulative ways, in backbiting ways, in passive-aggressive ways, in all those worldly ways. That's not how we seek the Lord and receive of his grace. We receive, we seek him humbly, with true repentance, acknowledging our sin, practicing the works of repentance to demonstrate that we really mean it. And we really have evidence of God's grace working in our lives. Hating and forsaking that sin. It must be put to death. But embrace the promise. Seek and you will find. And I'll leave these last words from Psalm 130 verse 4. With you there is forgiveness. That is God. That you may be feared. Amen. Amen. Father in heaven. Indeed. With you there is forgiveness. There is no other actual source of forgiveness. There may be worldly comfort. uh, There may be uh, human peace. But only with you is there true forgiveness. Uh, Thank you for the ministry of reconciliation that you've given to us people in this Christian life. That we can live out the mercy you've poured out into us. Living that out into all aspects of our lives. That others would see we're different. We're not different because we're better. We're not different because we never make mistakes. We're different because you have loved us. You have drawn us. You have poured out your grace into us. You've poured out your grace into us so much that we overflow. 
May we be <coughs> nourished. May we be uh, trees planted by uh, waters of life that do genuinely overflow into this community, uh, into this state. And Lord, that you would shed your love abroad, drawing more men to yourself. We thank you, O God, for your mercy in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.